0: Today is September 17th, 2019. We're at the Chicago offices of EconView bringing you independent voices on key issues in the global economy. Joining us today for the Hale Report is Catherine Ebata-Erins, Ahrens, who's the Vincent DePaul Professor of Political Science at DePaul University. Also in Chicago, she's the author of a new book that I think you'll enjoy hearing about, Beyond Technonationalism, Biomedical Innovation, and Entrepreneurship in Asia. Catherine and I have known each other for several years. We're both active members of the Japan America Society of Chicago. But Catherine, I've never had a chance to ask you, how did you first get interested in political science and economics?
1: Well, that's an interesting story, and it goes way back to when I was about 15 years old, and I was a high school student uh, on the northwest side of Chicago at a public high school, and I was in the honors AP program. And one of my courses was AP... European history and my teacher at the time was Croatian and he always started every class with a mini lesson on the nations of Europe not to be confused with the nation states of Europe and uh, so at that time you know it was the you know Yugoslavia was still a country at the time Um, I witnessed uh, the perspectives of somebody who wasn't part of an identity of a nation state, but he was very strongly affiliated with his sort of sub national identity of Croatian, of being Croatian. And I found that fascinating. And ever since that moment, I was inspired by this notion of what what is na- nation? What is nationality? What is national identity? Does it coincide with nationhood or what is this nation state? And it seems to be a very Western phenomenon because if you look at the sort of nation, national, nation-state formations of East, South and Southeast Asia, uh, that history is quite different and so I've been very fascinated Mm -hmm. with that comparatively.
0: Well, your book explores some of those issues and biomedical innovation within a few very specific Asian economies, um, Japan, China, India and Singapore, within this framework of tech, what you call techno-nationalism. What I'm interested in as well is how did you do your research? I know you travel all the time. Did you go and do field research? you did interviews. How did you go about gathering the the information?
1: Well, for the book that just came out from Stanford University Press on Biomedical Innovation and Entrepreneurship in Asia, I traveled to China, Japan, India, and Singapore over the course of about six years. And so I went to at least two out of the four countries every two or three months over the course of six years. I actually lived in some of these places. I traveled all over on buses, trains, planes, rickshaws, <laughs> sometimes bicycles, uh, and on foot to visit with and interview uh, mainly entrepreneurs as, as the book is about the perspectives of new venture businesses in the technology space, but also government officials, venture capitalists, uh, and um, other people who are related to new, new venture found
0: foundations in these countries. So, um, yes, so you were on the scene doing all of this. And, you know, as I was reading the book, too, I felt that the choice of topic of the industry that you had, biomedical, the biomedical industry, was really wonderful. How did you come to that instead of, say, telecommunications or electronics?
1: Well, uh, so this actually comes out of my first book, which was published by another press uh, some years ago. (laughs) To be nameless. (laughs) Also an excellent press. Uh, And that book was about innovation and entrepreneurship in Japan in particular. And uh, what I did in that uh, project was I compared the local innovation systems in three regions in Japan, Tokyo, Osaka, and the southern part of Kyoto. And at the time, I was working with high-technology manufacturers, primarily in the electronics and automobile subcontracting industries. Mm. And at the time, um, the word on the ground or the pulse was the next big thing in Japan was going to be medical devices and biotechnology. And so I did a little bit of writing about uh, biotechnology clusterization after that book uh, some of the uh, characters in the book, or the entrepreneurs, or the academics turned entrepreneurs, uh, were in the medical device space, and so I interviewed and worked with um, the founder of Horiba and mm-hmm. Shimazu and uh, Kyosera, uh who, by the way, uh, retired and became a monk. That's also an interesting story, but that didn't <laughs> end up in the in the <laughs> in first the book, book. I guess. <laughs> 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 uh, but I was really. Uh, sort of turned on to the biotechnology and biomedical space more broadly um, by the research I was doing in Japan. And at the time, in the late 1990s, early 2000s, the expectation was Japan was going to be the leader in this entrepreneurial space. And then we found that actually China and India, China in particular, really caught up to Japan in some of these key technologies and in fact has surpassed Japan in some things, including genomics. And so I was very interested to know what the process of this transformation was, and really from the perspective of a Japan specialist, because that's my main uh, field of expertise, I came to this project uh, from the perspective of Japan and wondering why it was that Japan has really struggled despite its stellar innovation technology foundations to really keep pace with some of the developments that are going on elsewhere in Asia.
0: So, you come up with some answers actually uh, to that question and to those questions. And at the heart of it is a theory of state that it, it's called networked techno nationalism. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what that means to you? You have a really elegant allusion to Janus um, in Roman mythology. And I thought that was a beautiful way to explain the concept.
1: Oh, I thank you. Um, actually, I came up with that uh, in the early stages of the manuscript. And I was actually thinking of the uh, temple gods in Asia, and how um, any uh, Asian temple or imperial structure has have these two sort of dog, these sort of demon dog lions who are guarding the gate. Uh, but I was encouraged by my editor at the time to use a more Western metaphor. And so we settled on the Roman God of Janus so that it would be more approachable to a Western audience to think about on the one hand, you have the Roman God Janus, the temple Janus itself is only open during times of war, uh, it has the two faces, one which mm-hmm. is open and outward-looking and one that is closed and inward-facing. And so the idea of this Janus metaphor is to think about how these economies in Asia really have to be very protective domestically to their nur- to nurturing their domestic industries before they've been formed so that they aren't subject to the kinds of hyper-competition of fully open markets. And we see this ha- as being a really big challenge in smaller economies like Singapore because they don't have that uh, latitude to be completely open um, and still not be exposing their domestic economy to some of the volatility of the global political economy um, compared to China and India, which have sort of had a quasi-open framework and have really, um, just to give some specific details, been able to draw inward foreign direct investment and technology flows from the global economy and yet resist Uh, For example, um, giving up majority ownership to their foreign direct investors.
0: So, Catherine, do you look at this as a kind of continuum then?
1: Yes, in fact, it is a continuum from uh, completely open or techno-global, as I talk about in the book, uh, such as we see in Singapore, or completely closed, uh, completely techno-national or classic techno-national, as we saw in Japan in most of the latter part of the 20th century. uh, And also, in fact, India, which... Uh, closed off its economy, tried to engage in what is called import substitution. And for your, your non-economist uh, listeners, import substitution is where a country decides we're going to close our borders. We're not going to uh, make our domestic uh, businesses vulnerable to uh, foreign businesses who have higher technology levels, higher expertise, a better handle on intellectual property rights regime, or... Um, Uh, the ability to pay attorneys to protect their intellectual property. Instead, they're going to close their borders uh, figuratively and literally to inward foreign direct investment and the foreigners that come with it. And this is what India did for a time, China did for a time, and Japan also did for a time. But we're encountering a world in which really being completely closed is not the way to develop a competitive uh, and innovative capacity that translates into new business
0: formation in those high technology sectors. But what you're saying is it's also not a good idea to be completely open. No, and as I mentioned
1: before, in the case of Singapore, it really has been extremely vulnerable to this market volatility, but also the whim of major pharmaceutical firms. uh, As an example, where in the 1990s, GSK, GlaxoSmithKline, Pfizer, all of the big biopharmaceutical companies uh, had some kind of research and development activity in Singapore. But what we found um, in the last few years, in fact, is that a number of these companies have decided to leave Singapore and move to places like Shenzhen in China or Shanghai in China because there's just simply many millions more uh, high technology, train, labor force, everything from your lab or or we call bench technician all the way up to Ph.D., trained scientists at major Western Research one institutions and with it, uh, an economy that only has about 5 million people in it, a little bit larger than... Kind the, of a city more than a state. Right, so a city-state mm-hmm. a little bit larger in terms of space and people than cities like Minneapolis, St. Paul or,
0: or Washington, D.C. here in the United States. You know, as I was uh, reading about this framework you're describing, I thought, you know, what's interesting um, is actually China has been making very techno-globalist statements that intellectual property should be changed, it uh, should be shared between countries, and should be open, while the U.S. has been going in a little bit of the different, a different direction, um, becoming more of a techno-nationalist. And is this what it's the at the heart of the U.S.-China trade tensions that we're experiencing now.
1: Yes, it is It is a bit of a, a surprise uh, historically, at least in the 20th century, the United States was thought to be the leader in uh, liberalism, economic liberalism, encouraging markets to be open, people to flow freely across borders and those ideas to flow with them, that important tacit knowledge that is the real um, fuel for the engine of new business innovation, uh, new venture formation and new product research and development. So it's really um an interesting situation we're having in the United States right now where we have Xi Jinping going to Davos, uh, the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, and making pronouncements about uh, China will be the leader of mass entrepreneurship and markets should be open. Right. It's a real turnaround.
0: It's a real turnaround.
1: It certainly is. But as they say, as we say, uh, for those of us who research innovation, um, the intellectual property rights regime. Now that China has something that's worth protecting, now they're going to embrace the intellectual property rights regime. Uh, but it's it's a it's a funny situation where when you're seeking technology, you want the innovation ecosystem to be open and free. But once you have something that you creating it, <laughs> once something <laughs> something is patented, then you want that door to be shut tightly behind you, and that. Uh, the thing that you've innovated to be
0: protected by global intellectual property rights. And in the 20th century, Japan went through that exact same process.
1: It certainly did. And, Mm -hmm. you know, um, just to mention one more thing about China that comes out in the book, and that is how China benefited from this open innovation architecture, the sharing uh, of uh, innovation knowledge across national borders, for example, in the Human Genome Project. And so the technologists and scientists who ended up starting the now um, globally competitive BGI, Beijing Genomics, which actually moved from Beijing to Shenzhen for various reasons, uh, they all learned how to start a business and engage in global innovation activity on this Human
0: Genome Project. The other surprise uh, to me, but something that I've been really puzzling about is how Japan, the biggest, uh, second biggest biomedical market in the world um, for both pharma and medical devices, fell behind because they had the internal market and the systems for reimbursement and so forth all fully developed, and yet they did. And, you know, you described uh, Japan now in the biomedical field as being flyover country, the Galapagos, and it's it, it's amazing to me that that happened. How how did that occur? What were the the factors that led to that sort of fall from grace in terms of innovation?
1: So the reason um, I've observed and described it in terms of flyover countries because when I'm I've interviewed so many venture capitalists, um, some private equity people, but mostly seed venture venture capitalists, people who High net worth individuals uh, who have put together funds to start supporting really, really new businesses. And that means businesses that are less than a year, 18 months or so, um, rather than the mid-stage capital that comes in that sometimes involves private equity, equity five, 10 years out from, from starting. And they were literally skipping over Tokyo and flying to Shanghai and flying to Singapore and flying to Bangkok and, uh, even uh, other parts in Southeast Asia, instead of stopping in Japan because they didn't see the opportunities growing in Japan. And that has a lot to do with some of the things that have many scholars have already uh, discussed, as well as journalists, in terms of the aging society uh, and the low birth rate, because if you think of it from the sort of macroeconomic perspective, Japan needs to increase productivity. It has two choices. It could either increase productivity in existing firms or it can start new firms that are highly productive to generate that return on investment or return on equity. But since there's such a low birth rate and also an aging society, you have this upside down pyramid where fewer and fewer young people are entering the workforce and they're having to support a higher and higher or a larger and larger slice of a burden at the top of aging consumers, aging parents, uh, and others who are really becoming a wealth of a burden on the, uh, the overall workforce.
0: Isn't there a cultural factor as well, an aversion to risk? Um, you write about the fact that there are virtually no angel investors in Japan. Yeah. I,
1: so um, this is something that I've written about a lot over over the years. And as a political economist, I try to stay away from strictly cultural arguments because I think they're very difficult to measure. Right. Um, I would point to uh, institutional, regulatory, and legal frameworks in Japan that are, are a little bit less than supportive to those people who do take risks in making new venture investments. And so... Uh, one of the things that I've advised over the years when I've worked with the uh, Japanese government is to work on capital gains taxation and really um, provide tax incentives to high net worth individuals in particular to take those risks. And if they lose, then they should be able to uh, write off all of that against their taxes
0: as, you know, as an example. Of of an incentive.
1: Of an incentive to mm-hmm. get people to loosen up uh, the purse string,
0: so to speak. Economists always look at incentives rather than culture. <laughs> as anthropologists were, would. So do you think there was a failure of, I'm going to move on to China. Do you think there was a failure of leadership somehow in Japan? Because Deng Xiaoping did open China to the rest of the world. You had that force of nature in in him. But in Japan, they there was no person like that. You, Do you think that that's a fair thing to talk about leadership?
1: So I think that um, there have been a few prime ministers who have really been at the forefront of trying to take Japan in a different direction. I'm thinking back to, and this is a little bit before my time, but Hashimoto in the 90s and then Koizumi a little bit later than that. Uh, and actually, uh, people like the, foreign, the, for, the former foreign minister, Taro Kono, who is now the minister of defense, is sort of an, viewed as potentially the next prime minister um, after Shinzo Abe's term uh, has finally come to, to an end. Uh, so there are folks like that who have a little bit more of a, say, globally cosmopolitan um, sense of the world. And again, not to fall into cultural arguments, but um, at least the kind of expertise of being uh, living in other countries, being educated in other countries, being part of the Japanese diaspora themselves and having that kind of life experience of looking at things from different perspectives than you would have if you are born, grow up, educated Uh, at all levels, and enter the workforce in Japan. I would like to also uh, mention how uh, if we were looking, if this book was about something else, Japan would be, in fact, the leader. So if we look at environmental activism, Japan has been at the forefront of that. If we look at uh, welfare supports for uh, the old, the sick, and the poor, excellent uh, universal income, I'm sorry, universal um, education and nationalized health insurance and so forth, preventative care, um, pregnancy care, uh, and all of that, Japan really is at, it, you know, Right. Along with the Scandinavian economies exactly. in terms of its leadership. and and that's part of the reason why Japan has been a little bit less of a risk taker because they have this sense of responsibility. The state has a sense of responsibility to its citizens. Um, and to take risks would to would be to uh, risk not being able to provide um, everything they can that they have until now.
0: you know, it's just uh, um, last T boone T Boone Pickens passed away, and he was quite famous for trying to. Um, force investment on uh, Koito, I think was the Japanese company at the time. So maybe what it, what uh, part of it is really about inward FDI, foreign direct investment, and that maybe it brings more than money. Mm-hmm. It brings expertise and experience and it brings a network, a global network. And I think that's what Japan was close to. And that's what China was extremely open to.
1: Mm, absolutely. And and in fact, China has, as I write about in the book, uh, created state level incentives to not only attract foreigners, their money and their technology, but also trying to uh, court, cajole, encourage their own diaspora. And that's part of the reason why I called the framework in the book network techno-nationalism is because China and India really have been very fortunate to rely on Tens of millions of individuals who are highly educated speak multiple languages, including uh, the national languages of their countries. Uh, but also have this experience working for global Fortune 500 companies, maybe uh, have experience actually in research and development and patenting, and so they understand the legal mechanisms of that. They've been involved with uh, investments into technologies in, in the countries where they're studying and working primarily in the western the western and, and northern parts of the world, in the United States and Canada and Western Europe, and even as far north as the Scandinavian economies.
0: Yeah, and sometimes uh, you know a govern a government can can create too many incentives in a structure, and it leads to distortions. So, um, so China's not a, it's a mixed picture. For example, and another thing you do discuss as well um, are the scandals that came about because of papers that were plagiarized or uh, patent applications that weren't quite right. So, and the reason people did that is because there were huge bonuses paid. Mm, right for doing and, that exactly yeah. so people
1: respond <laughs> individuals institutions and firms all respond to the incentives and if the incentives are structured in such a way so that you have to publish more and patent more that's exactly what individuals and their actually and their universities are pressuring them to do so and so right. mm-hmm. I mean at the end of the day those researchers who did falsify their records in order to obtain publications and patents, they are responsible, um, obviously, from a legal perspective, but they, they have been experiencing tremendous pressure from their university administrations to you know, crank out more and more numbers of these two things, patents and papers. And, and so um, I think it's a, it's a difficult position for academics who are trying to be entrepreneurs to be in right now.
0: One of the things that I discovered um, doing research in China is that very often people would not be aware of key research, in their, key research in their field. And I would say, have you read this paper or that paper? And they weren't aware of it. So the Great Wall, um, the kinds of controls there are, isn't that a huge disadvantage to China? Because if you don't have the same information as your competitor in another country... Um, you'll ultimately be disadvantaged.
1: I think until this past year when uh, VPN's virtual private networks were outlawed by the, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, whenever I've traveled to China, all the young people who shall remain nameless <laughs> all had their own VPNs. i some anonymous <laughs> interviews, I noticed. Anonymous, <laughs> lots of, uh, mostly anonymous, anonymous interviews right. in, in China, uh, you know, for the protection of my subject. Of course, of course. My, uh, of course. Um, so... Uh, So I think that that that, um, wall was actually not really in place. It was more like a picket fence uh, where people could sort of get through in order to obtain information uh, about new technology trends, uh, especially at the leading universities. And so I think that there was a kind of a don't ask, don't tell, turn, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to look the other way while you get that information you need, and then maybe I'll shut down the server next week. Right. Uh, but now it, there's been a real, real. It's uh, changed. Yeah. Really, really, really uh, very tight uh, closure, which um, is concerning, I think, for Chinese entrepreneurs in particular.
0: Right. And in other cases where things are more lax in China than in the rest of the world, that's enabled them to be a leader in genomics, for example.
1: Yes. And so, China and India both, again, if we're looking at Japan, uh, very little corruption, uh, you know, leading. Human subject protection, and I actually was uh, in Korea a few months ago interviewing biotechnology uh, venture capitalists and entrepreneurs. And one of my informants in in Korea was saying, "Oh, we'd love to do clinical trials in Japan because if if the instructions on the clinical trial say to take this pill at nine fifteen in the morning, and then again at twelve fifteen, they do it. They do it. You know, they have that pill ready at you know nine fourteen and thirty seconds with their glass of water. Whereas when they try to do uh, a trial in China, you know, you know, says not to eat with food. They're eating with food. They're not. Eat- they're not taking the medication when they're supposed to. Maybe they're not taking it at all. Maybe they sold it to somebody. Um, so, uh, in terms of the quality of research in Japan, I think comparatively, so China and India get a- get away with a lot more because there's such lax human subjects. But you know, you know, we've heard you know testing on uh, prisoners and political. Uh, prisoners and things like that, that goes on that you,
0: you wouldn't see in 21st century Japan. So India, um, you feel it's, it, it seems to me you're optimistic about India in the longer term, even though they've fallen behind. And maybe some of, one of the reasons for that is they're, they have a democratic state. You don't have the kind of command economy that you do in China. Um, uh, how do you see India going forward? Does democracy, is that helpful? Do you think?
1: Democracy in the long term. Well, you know, of course, we're biased because we're living, grew up (laughs) as an American living in, you know, uh, the greatest democracy in the world, um, I I feel, um, despite some of our uh, recent trials and tribulations. uh, India is, you know, us on steroids in terms of democracy. There's many, many voices. Uh, There is some uh, media censorship, but there's just so many more voices that are part of the discourse. Uh, And there's there's regional variations of where people perceive the national interest should be. There's there's the Hindu versus Muslim, the caste. I mean, there's just it's very, you know, as they say, democracy is messy and India, it's even more so. However, if you look at it from the perspective of the opportunities for new ideas, uh, creative ideas, innovative ideas, thinking outside the box, you have so much cross-pollination across the regions in in India and there's so many people who have had such a wonderful global experience in their education and being part of the diaspora and all of that creative milieu is just being uh, turned into real true potential in the long term if they can get a handle on their politics and some of the redistribution issues that um, are a challenge in an economy like India that has such a, uh, a huge gap between the rich and the poor. Uh, but also, uh, as I'm encountering in my new research project, which is about uh, protection and conservation of uh, plant biodiversity as part of um, biotechnology or biostock resource- resources for the exploration discovery of new drugs, uh, India and in the next by 2050, uh, I've been told by water scientists and uh, those who are familiar with ecosystem governance, they're going to run out of water in places like New Delhi. And so uh, the, there's going to be a huge global surplus problem. of water for the next few decades, and then there's going to be no water at all. And so India has much more pressing issues. Uh, on the horizon in terms of governance of their ecosystem and governance of resources and making sure that their population has access to safe and clean water in the long term. I think that's one of the big, big problems that may that may undercut India's growth trajectory in the next
0: 30 years. I loved reading the case studies and oh, in you. particular um, um, Biocon. And it's Kareen Mazumdar Shah. Kiran Mazumdar Shah. Of Thank course I don't, you. I don't <laughs> <Thank> speak <you. laughs> very well. Right. Um, Fascinating story about her.
1: Her story is really um, such an inspiration right. um, I think to younger technologists uh, and entrepreneurs who are trying to
0: make their own way in the biopharmaceutical space. So the last country, um, Singapore, we've touched on. But does size matter? Do you think there's a critical mass that just can't be gained and because of the huge expenses of research and development that a, a smaller country can't bear?
1: I think um, it's really a challenge for Singaporean entrepreneurs because they don't have a domestic market. So they can't really beta test and test their products with local uh, buyers, they have to always be global and it and you know for those of you who have visited Singapore from places like London, New York, or Chicago it's 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 one of those hard to get to spots in the world. Right. Uh, and so just to engage in business as a Singaporean entrepreneur uh, is really a challenge because there's so much more. Uh, sunk investment that you have to make into being able to get your product to market because the market is not 20 minutes down the road. It may be 20 hours by plane and train and bus uh, before you can even reach your customer.
0: Yeah, it's far away. Yeah. And and it's, so it's not only size, it's distance. Absolutely, what you're saying.
1: Absolutely. And in and the, these frontier technology uh, products um you know I'm not um I'm not uh, studying this field directly but in biopharmaceuticals if especially if you're working with um live uh immunizations it has to be stored in what is called cold cold chain storage routes and so being in Singapore and not having the critical mass of people to actually manufacture that amount uh, they can't scale um, they may have trouble connecting up to cold chain. It may be too expensive, uh, mm-hmm. for example. And this is part of the reason why these uh, pharmaceutical companies have in fact moved to China because the, these sort of costs are a lot lower and a lot more manageable um, when you can scale, when you have um, access to um, much more integrately inter- connected Um, transportation networks. And then we have One Belt, One Road, the new Silk Road that is really building up this infrastructure from China to the markets in Western Europe. And so this is another reason why China has a little bit more of a competitive edge than India does right now, because in fact, the uh, One Belt, One Road is completely bypassing India. It's actually being built through Pakistan.
0: Mm. And if you think about Australia, which has three or four times the population of Singapore, they have the same issues. So even if Singapore were a lot larger, I think it would be the same kind of thing. So
1: continue to be a challenge for that economy, I think.
0: Right. So, um, how does immigration fit into this and movement, human movements and talent and labor mobility? How do you, how do you look at that?
1: That's interesting. Um, if, if, if economies were truly open and libertarian, then we would be open to the idea flow, uh, the money flow, and the people flow. Right, But we tend to be open even if we consider ourselves liberals or neoliberals. We sort of shut down the conversation at the people flow. We want mm-hmm. the ideas and the money to flow, uh, obviously the trade and service uh, goods to flow across borders. Uh, But because we have a commitment to uh, the welfare support of our own citizens, we don't really uh, want to allow complete and fully libertarian open borders for immigration flows. And so uh, countries like China, India and Japan have tried to sort of play the global trade game uh, without necessarily... Really reforming immigration policy, so China and India can sort of get around that by attracting first and foremost its own diaspora, who are mm-hmm. all um, relatively, and again not to get into the cultural argument, but at least culturally competent in the in the language and the business culture of the domestic economy. Um, Japan is is having a little bit more of a struggle because. Uh, Not only do you have a situation where the diaspora is, is, you know, a fraction of the size of the tens of millions you have, you know, 50 million or so, depending upon how you're counting uh, for China and 25 million or so uh, Mm. for India. Again, depending upon where you're counting, some people say there's 200 million in the Indian diaspora, but roughly between 25 and 50 million for both of those countries. Um, And Japan just has, you know, Maybe a million, maybe two, depending on how it's counted. I'm I'm a fourth generation Japanese American, and I'm, I'm actually Finn. My mother's from Finland on, on my mom's side. But the new way of counting the Japanese diaspora, suddenly I'm included I in that see. number <laughs> to, boost the, to boost that aggregate total a little bit. So, I mean, uh, I happen to be fluent in Japanese, but I don't think there are very many. Fourth, fourth generation, generation, I'd <laughs> say, yes, you're a small are. group. So, right.
0: That's exactly right. Um I was thinking, as I read this and as I finished your book, I thought, oh, I'd love to hear what Catherine thinks about Korea and Taiwan as a a, a country that has a, a different kind of government and how that. So I'm looking forward to an additional view on those countries. Yeah. Yes.
1: In fact, uh, for the follow uh, on Project uh, on innovation architectures in biopharmaceutical new drug discovery, I am including... Uh, some some research in Korea. I did some research this year in Korea. You mentioned I you were traveling yes. there, so I <laughs> wondered. I, yeah, you know, I love the food. I love the people. Uh, so, a great excuse to go to Korea. And in fact, when I wrote this book, one of the external reviewers uh, said, "Why don't you include Korea?" And I said, "Because I've already got four countries, and I've already been working at this for almost half a decade. Right. <laughs> this book needs to be done.
0: <laughs> you can't include everybody.
1: Yeah. Uh, and I will be next year in uh, Chinese Taipei, Taiwan. Uh, wonderful. So, yes. so you, so it to be, be
0: continued. Absolutely, to be continued. So, and uh, new book. You also, you're going to be dealing with the environment, mm-hmm. also in Asia, right?
1: Yes. So I am on research sabbatical this year. I'm very fortunate to be um, on a special leave program uh, granted by my wonderful university, DePaul, uh, which, by the way, just launched a new school, a new program in applied diplomacy a few weeks ago. Thanks to a $20 million donation from Anonymous Benefactors. So there will be a lot of activity at my home university in international relations broadly, but also in terms of what I'm teaching and researching in international political economy. But in any case, I'm on a break from all that. Yes. (laughs) And I'm traveling around Asia between, uh, actually I started my leave in July and I will be gone Uh, You know, here and there, uh, mainly in Asia, uh, between now and next September, working on the follow-on book, which is about new drug discovery and what I'm calling inclusive innovation architectures. So how to get... uh, more stakeholders involved in that process. So the benefits, the access and the benefit sharing of the profits uh, is uh, shared by more people. But also, um, you know, open innovation structures is is really the best way to uh, encourage the broadest breadth breadth of uh, innovation activity, uh, but also uh, when
0: you're dealing with truly forefront uh, emerging technologies. Looking forward to it? And let me know the publication date, and we'll do this again. I'll be glad to. Um, Catherine's book, Beyond Techno-Nationalism, um, Stanford University Press, can be found in all the usual places. Um, and Catherine's other work um, can be found, too. On, you'll, you'll see her on LinkedIn and on Twitter. And her Twitter handle is at Aaron's and I'll spell that for you, I-B-A-T-A, no hyphen, a r e N is in Nancy S. So um, I'm going to follow you right after this. And thank you so much for joining us tonight on the Hale Report. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me.